All right, hello everyone. We're gonna start in, well, right now. Good timing, okay. So how's everyone doing today? All right, good to hear. Um, so, there it is. So um, I did post another uh, uh, information, uh, a chapter, not an information sheet, sorry. But I, I posted a chapter on um, scanning the verse and things to look for, as well as some examples of of what that looks like. Um, so take a look at that. That's in the acting exercise. And we're going to, we'll look over that briefly right now as we start class. Uh, was there, were there any other questions about the assignment uh, going forward? Um, you, you, mm -hmm. uh, you, you want to try and reach that number. Which, which section are you having trouble with? Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, well, let's, let's get into that a little bit then. Um, cause I think the, the chapter that it included might help there. Um, I mean, if you're off by a little bit, you know, that, that's fine. Uh, but, um, but before we do that, so we're going to go into the chapter and see if that could help, but any other questions before we, we jump into that conversation? Oh, I see. Yeah. There, there's contradictory information. Good. Um, so it should be 500 words for the super objective section, 500 words for the, let me just bring up the assignment. Um, 500 words for the, for the section after that, the character outline, and then 500 words for scoring the text. I think initially in the syllabus where the assignment is listed, it said a thousand words, but I, I brought that down to 500 in the uh, acting project assignment. Yeah, you're welcome. Sorry about that. That is, uh, that's my fault. I put um, two different word counts on two different documents. All right. Any other questions before we jump into uh, Christina's question a little more, a little more deeply? Okay, good. So, you know, when looking at these speeches here, so this is the, the chapter I gave you is from uh, this book. It's uh, by Christina Linklater, who is a acting teacher, uh, you know, kind of very famous acting teacher out of Colombia, um, and she's been, you know, teaching this stuff for years, kind of in the way Barton has, um, but her advice in, in this chapter, um, and I'm going to, uh, page 130 of the scan sheets, uh, th these are things to kind of be wary of, and this might help with trying to kind of fill out the fill out the 500 words for the decisions you're making. Um, so you are, so the, the idea of the iambic pentameter is that it's a, a heartbeat so that, that it resembles the English heartbeat, right? Or <laughs> the human heartbeat. Um, de-dum, 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 de-dum. Um, and her warning on number one is that it's the you know the 20th century and 21st century english is changing to stress different words so her example here is all passengers now awaiting the arrival of flight 443 may proceed 
directly to gate 14, etc. Um, and so what you're looking for instead is the de-dum, de-dum, de-dum pattern, that kind of heartbeat pattern. You know, so this it resembles the steady heartbeat that's continuing on. If there's something that diverges from this, um, you think of it in terms of biology. It, it is the, the heart is now changing. It's beating in a different way. It's slowing down. It's usually speeding up. Um, and so when you're trying to explain um, uh, your score here, um, why are you, you know, why in this one line or in these few lines are we, we speeding up or why is there more stress, right? So what, in one example, it could be there is 11 or 12 syllables in a line, right? So the, the line keeps going, right? It's almost like shoving more syllables into a line is like the heart beating faster, the person getting more excited. Why is he or she more excited in this scene? And that's a, that's a question you might want to answer in section three, scoring the text, right? Why is this person really excited? What are the conditions? Uh, what are the con What is the context <coughs> of the scene uh, that he or she is in that would justify this person suddenly getting excited? Um, you know, another thing would be uh, stresses at the beginning. We talked about the spondee, right? The dum dum. Um, you know what? What conditions uh, puts the person into an excited state in that way? Why is a line starting with two stresses, or why are there an unusual amount of stresses compared to um, unstressed syllables in a line? And so you could write about that, and and get it. You could get into the the psychology of the character based upon the circumstances the character finds himself or herself. Um, you know, so that would be one thing, thinking about it as a, a normal heartbeat and changes from there, right? And another thing she also writes about on page 131 um, is the uh, being careful of kind of me-isms or you-isms or uh, what she calls personal pronoun superiority. There's this <clears throat> instinct we have to kind of emphasize pronouns. And what she's saying is, don't do that. You know, pronouns are not something that would typically be stressed in in Shakespeare's speech. Um, you know, so you might want to cut your stresses around trying to avoid stressing pronouns. There may be cases where you, you can't avoid that, but, you know, you, you might want to avoid that. Which goes to, what are the most important words in the speech? By avoiding stressing pronouns... You're, you're stressing other words. And the words that are stressed are usually the argument of a speech. So let's see what her, her example of this is. Um, So um, we could see on page 134, Romeo talking. And, and let's look at the second block of text. Uh, thou canst not speak of that, thou dost not feel. Um, 
And so the stressed words here, canst speak that dost feel. And then it's you know, a little, little less convincing in the next line. Thou young I. So a stress pronoun that, you know, that's a choice you can make. Or if you want to try and avoid it, not. Uh, I julet thy love an hour, but married. Tibalt murdered. Um, so you might not want to make the, those choices, but <coughs> if we look at uh, if we look at that third line, especially our married Tibalt murdered. So two stresses on murder, and what we get here is kind of the plot at a particular time um, of the marriage. Tybalt was murdered, right? We, you know, we, I'm inferring that entirely from one line from the places of the stress. So if you could think of the stresses as being the way an argument or a plot is laid out, that's something you could also talk about in scoring the text. Um, and so that could be one of your decisions you talk about. I stress these words in order to, in order to make this kind of, um, this kind of argument. Let's see where else we could, where else we can see this. Uh, if we go to page 127, uh, Linklater does this with a, a sonnet. So this is a, a very famous sonnet. Um, and here we are. Since brass, nor stone, nor earth, nor boundless sea, but sad mortality, or sways their power, how with this rage shall beauty hold a plea? Um, okay, so let's. Well, let me let me get to the end of the the phrase. Whose action is no stronger than a flower. So the stresses and the argument here. Let's see what the argument is. Um, brass, stone, earth, bound sea, sad, tality, mortality sways power with maybe that's not convincing rage beauty hold plea action strong flower all right and so you could see the the kind of the stressed words are all these kind of um uh, unnatural things right brass stone earth sea and that's complemented with non um, non-material things, sad, mortality, power, um, rage, beauty, plea, and it ends on flower, a flower, which is, as she's designing it, a single stress, it would be flower, but, um, yeah, pronunciation would be a little different as you're going along. So something you could write about in that case would be the way kind of textual or material objects are complemented with um, with concepts, right? Sa or, or emotions, sadness, mortality, power. And that's put next to flower. Or that's put next to brass, stone, earth, steel. Um, so that's something you could write about too why those stresses make sense, why they make an argument.
Okay. So uh, let let me stop there a second and just see uh, any comments or questions about that. Okay. Uh, d does everyone see where this, where what I'm reading from is posted? Okay. Good. Uh, Christina, does that inspire writing? Okay. Good. And so. You know, so that that's kind of maybe a, a larger picture of it. Um, one thing looking back on that that speech, um, you know, maybe a smaller detail you could also write about. So that's that's the big picture, right? Thinking in terms of how does stress make an argument? Um, maybe a smaller picture. If I go to the third line of that poem, how with this rage shall beauty hold a plea? It ends up being stressed in in pure iams. How with this rage, you know, and so it's weird to say how with, um, how with this rage seems more natural. And so there might be, you might want to write about um, emphasizing the, the word how and creating a dactyl there, right? How with this stress, unstress, unstress, which then puts a lot of stress on the word rage. How with this rage shall beauty hold a plea and that would be something you could write about too and then say how this feeds into the the larger argument of of the passage okay good um yeah so uh if we also look at that chapter i posted <coughs> okay i have a little bit of a cough so i'm, I'm I'm going to try and not cough in your ears, but I might cough in your ears a little bit. Anyway, but if you look at page 135 of what I posted, and you see uh, Leontes's speech, it starts, is whispering nothing. Um, the whole speech is jagged as hell. It's 11 syllables, 12 syllables, 10 syllables, 9 syllables, 11 syllables, 12, 12. Um, that's a speech where the the unusual amount of syllables per line might be something you want to write about or start with. Um, you know, what are the contexts that inspired Leontes to kind of overspeak, right? Why is his heart racing so fast that there's more beats in it per minute than, than normally? Um, you know, is whispering nothing? Is leaning cheek to cheek? Is meeting noises? Kissing with inside lip? Stopping in the career of laughter with a sigh, a note infallible. Well, at this point, what he's talking about is he's suspicious, kind of crazily. It, it comes almost out of nowhere that his wife is uh, seeing another man. Um, and it's nuts, right? She like says hello to this guy and he's like, what? Oh, no, she's definitely cheating on me. I'll kill her. Um and and his his kind of heightened or crazy state can be reflected in the way the verse is structured. The reason why there's so many syllables when there should be so so much fewer, so many fewer syllables, the argument I would put forward is pretty basic. This doesn't have to be a complex assignment, is that he is um, very, very upset by his suspicions. And so the the argument of the piece is is uh, is based on or is founded on the fact that there's just more syllables than 
you would normally see in a you know standard iambic pentameter. There's no way to kind of hide the syllables or collapse them into 10. It's 11, 12. Um, and then from there, you could show uh, using which words are stressed the argument more specifically. Um, you know, leaning cheek, cheek, meat, noses, kissing, lip, laughter, sigh, you know, um, breaking. <coughs> yeah, and you could hear what those words were moving from kind of um, th these these parts of the body, right? Cheek, cheek, noses, lip. Um, then the, the noises, laughter, sigh, note, um, and then, you know, breaking, we start to get a verb there, foot, foot, corner, wishing, swift, minutes, noon, midnight, and so then we get some kind of, um, some action with breaking, and then we move into kind of marks of time, which is weird, minutes, noon, midnight, all. Uh, and so you could write about the that kind of progression of the argument, how he's going from these kind of physical body parts. He's seeing this scene of adultery or what he perceives to be adultery. And he's seeing it as these different body parts kind of um, uh, coming together or he's identifying the different body parts or he's collapsing her or breaking her apart into different body parts, no longer taking her for who she is but just the physical, these physical things, right? The, the, the parts of you, not the, the you of you. Um, and then he's breaking them apart, right? He, he looks at each of them, breaking them down. Um, and then you have the, you know, the, the time part, minutes, noon, midnight, and all. Um, and so after he, he breaks this person down into these little parts, then there's this this sort of um, reflection on time, on passage, on being kind of uh, being, I don't know, trapped with this person who is no longer a person. She's just a collection of of untamed. Hmm, I don't know what you would call it. Untamed, um, uncollected parts. And, and, you know, you could write about that. I'm doing it somewhat sloppily because I'm, I'm doing this off the top of my head, reading this thing. Uh, but, you know, that's the type of investment you want to make into this project in terms of how the verse is working. Yeah, you could say, well, uh, these are generally the words that are being stressed, right? Or you could say, here's a specific point that, um, here's a specific, you know, uh, a specific word or line that's being stressed in an, unus in an unusual way. Which both are fine. It might be harder to just talk about a single stress and, you know, finish the assignment, right? Get to 500 words. So looking at the, um, looking at maybe kind of the argument of it, 
you know, uh, why is Leonte stressing physical parts and then giving examples of, you know, body parts that are being stressed, right? Where the stresses are falling, um, give those examples and then incorporate that into the larger case. Hmm. You're welcome. <clears throat> Okay, should we get into Lear? <coughs> okay, well, let's do it. All right, so last time we ended, I think, on Act 1, Scene 2. I think we got all the way to Scene 2 out of this extended play. And so... Um, let's start with the beginning here, the, the first line or the first speech of Edmund. Um, and so what's going on here? What is, who is Edmund? What is he talking about here? Sure. It's act one, scene two, the first speech of that scene. So lines 1 through 22. So let's talk about Edmund generally. Who, who is Edmund? What does he want? What is he doing in this? He's an antagonist. Yes, and, and who he's an antagonist to is somewhat at variance because he doesn't seem to necessarily be directly opposed to King Lear. However, when Lear, um, when, well, when Cordelia and France come back, to invade the country on behalf of Lear, on behalf of themselves too, but also on behalf of Lear, that is not to his interest. So he opposes that. Um, but he also opposes, you know, the husbands of the women he, he's sleeping with, right? Um, Albany and Cornwall. So, I mean, Cornwall dies pretty early, but, you know, he's, he's opposed to, to Albany. Um, but his main antagonist early on is who? Yeah, his brother Edgar. Um, and what's the problem here? Why, why are they at loggerheads? Yeah, that's it. He's illegitimate. He won't get any inheritance from his father. And his father is... <coughs> Mm -hmm. Exactly. His father's Gloucester. So, you know, in this scene, we have a scene between Edmund and Gloucester. And, um, and Gloucester's clearly, you know, lo loves the legitimate brother more. Um, and, you know, they're, Edmund's upset consequently. So that's, that's the scene. And uh, we start with Edmund saying, Though nature art my goodness to thy law, my services are bound. Wherefore should I stand in the plague of custom and permit the curiosity of nations to deprive me? For that I am some twelve or fourteen moonshines lag of a brother? Why bastard? Wherefore base? When my dimensions are as well compact and my mind as generous and my shape as true as honest madam's issue. What why brand they us with base, with baseness, 
bastardly base base. Okay. Yeah. The, the verse is strange there. So what is his argument in the first half of this speech? <coughs> what is what does it mean to stand in the plague of custom that we see here on line three? Yes. So the the custom. Let's look at the the those first few lines again and see how this is being laid out. Um, Thou nature art my goddess. To thy law. My services are bound. So it starts off with him kind of praising nature. You know, natural law to, to that, I, I'm bound to you. I mean, it's not natural law. It's to, to nature, to um, what, what you're kind of born with. Then his problem is, what, what comes right after that, is the plague of custom. So it's, yes, it's inheritance. It's, it's the way of the world. It's the way of man, right? It's the traditional stuff that custom has set up, which does deprive him of property rights, or at least inheritance. His dad, his father could inherit him, and, and his father does, but, you know, while there's a legitimate brother that Gloucester likes, he, he's not going to. The reason being custom, the way the world is, is built, right? The, the um, society, the social aspect, all of this is is in opposition to bastards because bastards aren't accepted by society, at least not in the same way that legitimate children are in this world anyway. And so his argument here is I'm going to court nature or be from nature and nature is seen as in opposition to society. Nature is the goddess because after all, um, Wherefore base, this is line six. He says, wherefore base, base just means kind of um, uh, bad or low, right? Uh, wherefore base, when my dimensions are as well compact, my mind is generous and my shape as true as honest madam's issue. As, as the child of a, an issue is a child. So as the child of a married woman, um, why brand they us with base, with baseness, bastardly base, base? Um, yeah. So what he's saying is I have better qualities. My nature, you know, is I'm smarter. You know, th that's what my mind is generous. I don't think he means like, I, I want to give to a lot of charities when he says my mind is as generous. It's my mind can do more. It can produce more, right? I'm, I'm smarter in my shape as true. Um, you know, it's I, again, I don't think he's being like virtuous there, being truthful, but his shape, he's like physically as prepared, right? He's 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 fit physically in, in a physical sense. So nature has made him um, very capable. However, the custom of the world has taken that away. And this is a theme that that's throughout this play, right, is this kind of idea of custom and nature and where they collide and where they go together. And I think Edmund is, is introducing that further. We also have, again, like we saw with, as you like it with the Dukes fighting. And then we also have the sons of Sir Roland fighting. 
we have the larger plot of Cordelia being disinherited and the two sisters gradually ignoring their father. Um, and then within that, we have another family conflict <coughs> with Gloucester, Edmund, and Edgar. And how does that, just in, in brief summation, how does that second family conflict play out through this play? So, like, literally what happens? What is the, what is the plot? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's state right. He he has kind of um, he being Edmund has a letter he delivers to his father um, about you know uh, uh, about um, his brother attempting to kill the father right and, and inherit the lands and his property more quickly, um, and then you know Edmund, who's pretty clever, plays both sides and tells uh, you know tells Edgar to kind of fake a sword fight with him. So it looks like he's, you know, kind of trying to protect the father against villainy. And what it ends up looking like to Gloucester is that uh, Edgar is attacking Edmund to, you know, in order to make sure he has, he ends up getting the inheritance. And so this, this kind of ruins that relationship. And so good. So that, that's kind of Edmund's prompt here. What ends up happening to Edgar? What does Edgar, what does Edgar do? What does he take on? Because now he's disinherited and he's a villain. Go ahead, Jude. <coughs> yeah, Tom Bombadil. Oh. <laughs> Yeah, uh, uh, Tom Bedlam. Sorry, Tom Bombadil was from the Lord of the Rings. That's uh, <laughs> my bad. Um, yeah, no, no. Tom Tom Bedlam. Tom Bedlam is. Um, sorry to interrupt you, Jude. What, what were you saying? Mm -hmm. Good. Yeah, and in Tom Bedlam is from a, a mid sixteenth century poem. And it's a poem about like a, a person who pretends to go be crazy and wanders the countryside. And so that that's sort of what he's doing. He's he's sort of um, leaving custom and going into the, the, you know, this natural world and and taking on the appearance of madness. OK, good. So 
What happens to Gloucester? He, he eventually dies. He dies at the end. And we, we don't see him die. Because there's so many people who die in the end that we, like, you, you can't see them all on stage. Um, but he dies of a broken heart. You know. Uh, and, and one can imagine exposure. Um, but what, what happens to him that... What happens to him in the plot? So let's trace his, his arc. What does he go through? Hmm. Yeah, it's it's so France is looking to invade and really set Lear back on the throne, right? Fra France is a good guy. And really, France is kind of a stand in for Cordelia, uh, who's who's married off to France. Um, and Gloucester, you know, being being a guy we like, I mean, he's kind of a, he's a bit of a bastard in the beginning, but he's generally, you know, a good person. He takes France's side. And you're right, Jude. Uh, he gets ratted out. He gets captured, and then, um, and then uh, Cornwall and Cornwall cuts his eyes out, and then he's kind of cast out onto the world. And of course, he meets uh, Tom, um, his son, in the disguise of Tom. And what does he want Tom to do for him? Mm -hmm. Yeah, he wants him. He wants Tom to help him commit suicide. Um, yeah, so what does Edmund do? Uh, excuse me. What does Edgar <coughs> do uh, with that request? Well, he's he's pretending he's somebody else. Yeah, he's pretending he is Tom the whole time. So he's, he's not he's not pretending he's or not he, he's not revealing he's the son, right? Um, but he le he kind of stages the suicide, right? He takes him. He says he's taken him to. He wants to go to the cliffs of Dover, which is um, cliffs on the very high white cliffs on the the south. Uh, south coast of England uh, they're, they're very pretty they face France and he's you know going to take him there and you know let him l pretend to take him there and let him jump and his justification is um, 
by going through with the action, even though, you know, Gloucester has actually gone nowhere. He's just sort of walked in a circle. By going through the action, uh, Edmund or Edgar believes that that will cure his father of his melancholy. Right. So it's kind of like act out the, this kind of damaging thing you want to do and that will save you from actually doing it. Okay. And he tells him sort of, you know, like he pretends to be a guy on the ground who, who saw him fall and said, you know, it was kind of a miracle that that he survived and all that. Um, so good. So that's that general plot line. And eventually uh, we, we learn that Gloucester's heart gives out and he dies. Um, what happens? And let's go to we're going to jump around a little bit with with a different axe. Um <clears throat> just in order to kind of trace this trace the uh the, the story of Edmund Edgar and their their plot um so if we go to act 5 We have um, kind of France defeated, um, and Edmund is there, and you know um, Albany is accusing Edmund of treason, and Edmund says that he wants to to prove his title, right? Um, and so he's going to <coughs> he's going to accept all challengers, right? And so it's kind of he's going to sort of prove his innocence by, through through combat, which is something they used to do. I don't I think it was even out of date by Elizabethan times, but um, in the old age it would be like you're going to prove your your valor by combat, um, and so. They sort of announce to the camp, does anybody want to come to challenge? Um, and who comes to challenge? So this is Act 5, Scene 3. So the, the person who comes to challenge is, is his brother. Edgar comes. Um, and he's in disguise. Uh, <clears throat> you know, and, and the Herald asks him, what's your name, your quality... <clears throat> and why you answer this present summons. No, my name is lost by treason's tooth bare gnawed and canker bit. Yet I am as noble as the adversary. I come to cope. Cope just means to encounter. Um, and then they draw, they fight. Uh, and... There ends up being kind of a, a bit of a, a reconciliation between the two brothers. So obviously, you know, um, Edgar wounds Edmund, uh, so he he wins, um, you know, and uh, you know the the Ed, Edgar admits, you know, that he is his brother, and he says this is down on line one sixty eight. This is Edgar speaking. <clears throat> Let's exchange charity. 
I am no less in blood than thou art, Edmund. If more, the more thou hast wronged me, my name is Edgar, and thy father's son. The gods are just, and of our pleasant vices make instruments to plague us. The dark and vicious place where thee he got cost him his eyes. Um, and then Edmund responds, Thou hast spoken right, tis true, the wheel has come full circle, I am here. Okay. Um, and, yeah, and then uh, Edgar reconciles with, with Albany. Um, and then what happens to Edmund in the end? Edmund does die, but he does something redemptive at the, at the very end of this play. And what is that? <coughs> so, in this last scene, um, the, the sisters are killed, right? Um, so, uh, Goneril poisons Regan. Um, and then um, she commits suicide and what is her why is she doing this why did that happen no uh, Goneril poisons Regan um, and then she commits suicide so that's why Regan is kind of like grabbing her stomach towards the end and is kind of like I, you know, feels pain. She talks about how, um, how she's kind of hurting, uh, but it's then Goneril then commits suicide, right? So she Goneril is responsible for both both the sister deaths. So do do we know why that happened? They're both after Edmund. They're both in love with him. Right, so we... Yeah, they're both kind of trying to romance... Or, or have romanced him. And so there's kind of a plot to kill uh, Goneril's husband. You know, Regan's husband is already dead by this point. Um... <coughs> But, you know, they, she wants, Goneril wants him to kill Albany, her husband, uh, you know, setting him up. And so they're kind of jealous of each other. They're, they're fighting over him at this point. And at this point, Albany, at this point being Act 5, Scene 3, Albany learns of this. Um, and he says, produce the bodies, be they alive or dead. This judgment of the heavens that make us tremble touches us with pity. Oh, is this he, Edmund? The time will not allow the compliment which very manners urges. Um, and then a few, few lines down, Albany says, Great thing of us forgot. Speak, Edmund. Where's the king and where's Cordelia? Goneril and Regan's bodies are brought out. Seest thou this object, Kent? Da, da, da. Alack, why thus? And Edmund says, Yet Edmund was beloved. This is line 240. 
Yet Edmund was beloved, the one the other poisoned for my sake, and after slew herself. Edmund continues, I pant for life, some good I mean to do, despite of mine own nature. Quickly send, be brief in it, to the castle, for my writ is on the life of Lear and on Cordelia, nay, send in time. So what happens here is he sees, he learns that, uh, you know, both these women loved him and, and apparently Goneril uh, especially loved him. And um, when he sees their bodies, he realizes, you know, for the first time, you know, yet Edmund was beloved. It's, it's kind of the first time anybody's loved him or shown any kind of sign of it. And granted, it's intensely perverse. I mean, it's murder-suicide. Um you know, that, that, I don't think this is natural or, you know, according to how Shakespeare would define natural, but it is a sign of love. And when he sees it, when he's able to see that someone loved him for the first time, what he does is he says, oh, no, you know, I put an order for Cordelia and Lear to be killed. Let's stop it. And so in the end, he's able to reconcile with his brother. And when he sees that someone actually loved him, he takes a positive action. He takes action to save Cordelia and, and Lear. And so that's, that's something to think about. That's kind of that, that arc of development there. Um, something to think about still is this idea of the natural world and the social world. And we see with Edmund, you know, the, the, Social world is all bad. Custom is bad because it's unfair to him. And it legitimately is unfair to him. However, you know, one question to kind of mull over is um, what kind of mix between custom and let's call it talent, let's call it the natural world, which might be um, people who are endowed with abilities as opposed to people who just are born at the right time in the right position what is the the negotiation between those two factors all right and that's 11 o'clock a little it's 1101 now and uh thank you for your time and any questions i'll, I'll stay on for a few minutes